0: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Vancouver area residents are still reacting to a 48-hour transit strike that impacted quite a few buses and sea buses last week. There's some big disability implications when it comes to a transit shutdown. Let's get some perspective from Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasqua. Elizabeth is the founder of EM Disability Consulting, and Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Dave. And hello, Marco. Hello, hello. Marco, you live in the Vancouver area. What's your big takeaway on how transit shutdowns impact the disability experience?
1: Well, first and foremost, Dave, today's segment I think is more the overarching theme is quality of life. And uh, when you think about quality of life, you think about being able to access your essential services. Now, transit is not deemed an essential service by our provincial government, And I really think that it should be, because uh, there's so many people with disabilities who rely on transit on a daily basis and can't use things like handy dart or paratransport. Um, from a reliability standpoint. And so that reliability factor is normally there with bus services and SkyTrain, especially in the uh, greater Vancouver area. And when that is all of a sudden just cut off and all you get from TransLink is you may want to find alternative uh, solutions to your transportation Oof. needs. Well, that kind of a <laughs> statement doesn't really uh, you know, fly when you have medical appointments to get to and things like this. So it completely cut people off at the knees. And thankfully, I didn't have to go any Whereby by transit while the strike was actively happening um, but I know that I would have been impacted um, you know should I not have alternative um, solutions for myself so it's a big deal Dave.
0: Local context matters here especially for folks who are in North Vancouver where if the C bus isn't going and the bus isn't going <laughs> it's not like you can just walk across the bridge or wheel across the bridge to get into the downtown core it is a stranding stranding scenario that leaves people completely mm-hmm. vulnerable vulnerable. Elizabeth, this is a BC story, but you, even as a Toronto resident, got to live it firsthand last week because you were in British Columbia. How'd the shutdown impact your Vancouver experience?
2: Yeah, it was, um, I would say affordability was a huge piece. So Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, we ended up having to take, my colleague and I, a lot of Ubers, and I, that's a new thing for Vancouver. The last time I was out there, I, I didn't see Uber, so I'm, I'm you know excited to see that come, but the surge pricing was real. Um, oh, so we oh. were going from Robson, which is downtown, over to Hastings, not too, too far, mm-hmm. maybe a 10-minute ride, and our Ubers were three times the price the other issue yeah it was it was it was an ouch the other issue was the waiting right so we you know we we were waiting anywhere from like 20 to 35 minutes because it just wasn't enough ubers and i think perhaps because it's still newish out there. There maybe aren't as many on the road and then you get a transit strike. But also, you know, on top of that, the other issue, of course, is accessibility. So if you needed an accessible mm-hmm. Uber um, because you were used to taking a bus or a SkyTrain that was accessible, that wasn't always a possibility. So yeah, it really, it did impact me mostly from a pocketbook perspective, but also a time perspective, like things that should have taken 10 minutes, we had to bank like 30, 45 minutes.
0: Yeah, but you know, Marco, pocket and time, like, like that, that's a big deal. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's a a huge deal. And actually, to your earlier point, Dave, also, people um, who are on Vancouver Island, you know, things like accessing groceries on the regular Mm -hmm. basis, maybe you you come over into town to do that, and now you're basically cut off at the knees. I saw some memes online that were utilizing, uh, you know, clips from movies where people were uh, using rafts to get over, and they were making fun (laughs) of the fact that now people are going to have to use rafts to get over from North Vancouver just to get access to those things. But uh, it's real, Elizabeth. And, you know, with regards to the um, accessible uh, Ubers, we don't even have uh, wheelchair access vehicle Ubers available or even um, uh, the I have to use comfort when I when I go and do it. They don't have Uber assist here
0: as well. Yeah,
2: we we noticed that that extra care. Yeah, that extra care is just not there and the cabs the accessible cabs were so hard to find.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's that that's a whole that's a whole different uh, kettle of worms. For the sake of pace, let's switch gears here. The sure. province of Alberta Is expanding pharmacy clinics for primary care. Over 100 will be in operation by the end of the year. Several provinces have similar policies on the book. And this was actually the topic of the Daily Poll last Friday. But I think bringing in both of you for your perspective on this is useful. Elizabeth, how do you feel about pharmacies being a more primary point of care?
2: I think it's a really positive step forward. I mean, we're already seeing such a shortage, and if it's something simple like you need a flu shot or you need um, a simple prescription for you know a cold, I think it's a really good stopgap. You'd never want that to replace or give people the um, you know impression that it replaces their primary care physician. But even for myself, both my COVID shot and my flu shot, I went to my local pharmacy for because the wait at my doctor's office was four to six weeks, and I got into my pharmacy within two days. Mm. So I think there's a real like taking a burden off the system. But I think it's just going to be really important to delineate those clear lines. If here's when you actually should go to your doctor or your nurse practitioner, and that will, I think, also be really important for pharmacy professionals to communicate as to when this is sort of an issue that maybe needs more attention.
0: Marco, I do look at a policy like this somewhat optimistically. I just think anytime you can increase points of contact with the health system, Mm. that's a good thing. And especially if they're familiar points of contact that fit into the day-to-day lives of people. I, of course, have my concerns as well, because we actually need more family doctors uh, in this country, but I, I overall look at this optimistically.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I, I can't believe the people who are slamming the Alberta government, at least they're doing something about it. I'll tell you both right now, I don't have a GP anymore. Mine retired. Neither do I. And guess, and guess I. where my files went? They're up and they're in a dusty closet somewhere, right? So um, at least there's an opportunity for you to access healthcare somewhere. Yes, that, it's a Band-Aid solution, so to speak. And yes, we do need more doctors and more GPs to be accepting people and actually just have more doctors. Uh, doctors in general, but at least the Alberta government is actively doing something about it. I can't say the same um, here in British Columbia, at least from my perspective.
0: Did did we just have unanimity across all three of us not having a family doctor or a GP, Elizabeth?
2: Mine retired at Christmas. That's so I, and I realized I was maybe confusing because I said early, a few minutes ago that I, you know, I was trying to get in for a flu shot. Yeah, I had a great doctor and and they retired at Christmas time or holiday time. Wow. So
0: millennial bingo all three of us not having a GP (laughs) we'll we'll put that one out there all right guys a couple more stories here for the sake of pace let's keep on moving Last on technology accessible technology made a splash at CES again this year the gyro glove is designed to counteract hand tremors it weighs about a pound is battery-powered and covers the hand and forearm. Elizabeth, this one jumped out to you. How optimistic are you about technology bridging accessibility barriers?
2: I'm optimistic in terms of the potential. This glove looks like it's it's really going to help people to be able to, to eat and perhaps even use their hands to write more independently. I think where I'm cautious in my optimism is cost, because mm. a lot of the technology that we know um, costs a lot of money. And I'm also a little bit um, cautiously optimistic around look. So I did actually kind of think about, okay, what are some of the technologies that I use? And now they're a lot sleeker. But I find when technology is really new, the look and feel kind of makes you stand out quite a bit. And I think as somebody that already has a a difference, perhaps that's something that people are maybe going to feel a little bit uh, concerned about. But I think in terms of what it can do for people and the dignity it can provide, I'm really excited to see where it goes.
0: Yeah, Marco, I'm going to use the word optimism again, because I do believe in technology. You and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago about uh, some technology competitions and accessibility and where they intersect. How optimistic are you about technology being a key to bridging accessibility barriers? Well, Dave, you know I'm an optimistic guy. That's basically my whole <laughs> mantra, right? So, uh, you
1: know, yeah. No, definitely I'm, I'm optimistic. But I agree with Elizabeth. Um, that device is amazing, but it looks a little bit clunky. That being said, if they could shrink the gyroscope to be a little bit smaller and still uh, address the same issue, it would be fantastic. However, I watched the video before the segment about the gyro glove. And um, the impact and, as I said earlier, the quality of life that it's creating for those mm-hmm. who are wearing it, it is immeasurable. Right, I mean, I'm looking at people who are showing themselves trying to pour a cup of tea beforehand, and then they put the gyroscope on, turn it on, and now they're able to pour without spilling hot water everywhere, or have the dignity of being able to crochet if that's something that you want to do, or play Jenga. That one of the people were playing Jenga successfully. <laughs> oh my gosh, and that is that is awesome. Like like that is that is bridging the gap and bringing families together for something that is so. Um, People could just throw that away who have their regular function. But all of a sudden, if that's removed from you and you're shaking every day, you're going to notice those things. So every small detail matters. And so I'm all for this type of technology coming into our ecosystem.
0: Absolutely. I, I like that. The little details, the little details, the little things, the spice of life. Okay, one more story to get a reaction from you two on. This was the top story of the day on the show, but it's been about 90 minutes since I played the audio. So may as well reset this one. Air Canada is introducing a policy that intends to serve people with invisible disabilities. Here's Michelle Zadikian.
2: Dubbed the Hidden Disability Sunflower Program, the effort allows customers to wear a sunflower lanyard that indicates to staff they may need extra assistance or have specific needs. The move falls under Air Canada's three-year accessibility plan and comes after numerous reports of passenger mistreatment last year that prompted the airline to apologize and promise to do better. The sunflower lanyard will be available at check-in counters at multiple airports across Canada and on board Air Canada flights. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press.
0: Marco, I get the point, but I don't think Air Canada gets the point. It does not matter if people with disabilities identify themselves. The service in aggregate has been awful. So I don't see how making people with disabilities wear lanyards is going to improve anything, unless there's a culture shift in the company
1: uh dave my reaction immediately was congratulations but what have you done for me lately you know that apology from air canada was about people who were being mistreated mostly with mobility devices and mobility challenges um who uh you know during transfers into their seats were being injured or being uh had forced to drag themselves off of planes because they weren't getting assistance this wasn't about non-visible disabilities and listen To my friends with non-visible disabilities, I think it is a positive step for you, and that I congratulate you in that regard, but that's not the bigger issue here. You know, the bigger issue here is overall what are they going to do to improve services for persons with disabilities, period. The identification piece is a piece, but it's not the whole picture.
0: And Elizabeth, this is where Marco and I clear out and give you some space. It's almost like your entire trip last week is fodder for this segment. So react to the story, <laughs> but you also have some autobiographical experience to share.
2: Yeah, I think, I, like Marco said, the lanyard's a great first step. I do wonder, though, about, you know, rolling out awareness. Like if I walked up to a checkout counter and asked for one, are people going to know what they are and how to use them? Yeah, I I think for me, when I think about airlines, it's consistency that's missing across airports and from gate to security to to airplane to deplane on the other side. And I wish there was a way, and I recognize that this is, brought with probably all kinds of complications, that you could actually bring someone with you through security. They would get cleared like you and that person could assist you to your gate and then leave. Um, Not everybody would have a support person that could do that, but it would would sure make it easier for those of us who maybe have someone already driving us to the airport to have that person come through with us and make sure we're settled. I was actually taken to the wrong gate. I had a transfer in Calgary last week coming home um, and I looked up my gate and i was fairly certain that i was right i looked at the app and the person said nope uh you're going to X gate. Um, So not only was I taken to the wrong gate, I asked on the way to stop, to use the ladies room and to get a coffee. I was told no, they didn't have time. Um, And additionally, I was, yeah, it was actually really, really quite bad. And then when I, when I left the aircraft, um, I expressed again to the the flight attendant that I I only had an hour. So I needed to get um, assistance as soon as possible. And I was left waiting for almost 25 minutes. So I almost missed my connection. So all that to say, um, I think that there's real inconsistency from place to place to place.
0: Yeah, show me you can do your service, and then you can have all the lanyards you want. Like show me you can do something with your disabilities, disability disability policies that are already on the books now, and then I'll then I'll give you all the flowers you want for your flower lanyard. Ooh, I landed the plane pretty good right there. Hey Marco, thank you for this. Thanks so much, Dave. I mean, I landed the plane kind of okay. I stumbled over my own words. Professional (laughs) broadcaster that I am. Elizabeth, thank you as well.
2: You're welcome. I am home safe and sound.
0: Then that's what we like to hear. Marco Pasqua is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Elizabeth Moeller is the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Coming up after the break, there's some uh, fun coffees that are popping up on the market. So Alex Smythe will play a game of sip or skip. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.